Do you know what life is really like for those who eliminate God from their thinking and then stop to think about their future? I want you to hear from an individual, a philosopher at Oxford. He had been a member of the British Parliament. He was a well-known author. By his own admission, life was great. But one little problem. In the middle of it all, I was overwhelmed, almost literally so, by a sense of mortality. The realization hit me like a demolition crane that I was inevitably going to die. Death, my death, the literal destruction of me was totally inevitable and had been from the very instant of my conception. Nothing that I could ever do now or at any other time could make any difference to that nor could it ever have done so at any moment of my life. In the eye of eternity, a human lifespan is barely a flicker. Death will be upon us before we know where we are, and once we are dead, it will be forever. What can anything I do mean or matter to me when I have gone down into complete nothing for the rest of eternity? What can it matter to anyone else either when they too are eternally nothing? If the void is the permanent destination of all of us, all value and all significance are merely pretended for the purpose of carrying on our little human game like children dressing up. He wrote very eloquently about his struggle with meaninglessness, the realization that no matter what he did or what success he had in his life, whether he wrote great books or became foreign secretary, whether he married or not, whether he failed at everything he did, or was very successful. Nothing, he said, would make the slightest difference to me or to anyone else when all of us were nothing, as everyone was going to be, including everyone not yet born. That it could therefore make no difference when I died and would have made no difference if I had never been born. That I was in any event going to be for all eternity what I would have been if I had never been born. That there was no meaning in any of it, no point in any of it, and that in the end everything was nothing. He wrote all of this in a book called Confessions of a Philosopher. He wrote that after all these years of seeking, I am as baffled now by the larger metaphysical questions of my existence as I was when I was a child. Indeed more so, because my understanding of the depths and difficulties of the questions themselves is now so much greater. You know, most people try to ignore this reality by just not thinking about it. But without God, this is the only reality there is. This is it. Unless you can answer the problem of death, you have no answer to the problem of life. Death ruins everything. It is the great neutralizer, the great destroyer. Cliff Goldstein told a little story. He said, last year in front of students at a secular college in California, I spoke about the existence of God. I said, you know, when I was about the age of most of you and not believing in God, when something convicted me every now and then that maybe God did exist, I always pushed the notion out of my mind. Why? Because something told me that if indeed God did exist, then considering how I was living, I was in deep trouble. 
The mood shifted instantly. Dozens of consciences in sync started grinding against themselves. It was almost as if the temperature in the room rose from the friction behind all these suddenly uncomfortable faces. You know, every now and then, conscience seems to come alive, doesn't it? And we are forced to think, even if just for a moment, just for a moment. An atheist wrote, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It is that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And I say, what an amazingly honest admission, straight up. You see, God automatically comes with some moral problems. If God exists, there's a transcendent moral power to whom I will probably have to give an answer to sometime. And that is a thought some people don't want to have. Even if they don't have a conscious knowledge of God, the thought that they're not living right. And you know the real reason, the real reason evolution is so popular is because it offers a temporary escape from a nagging conscience. Maybe there's some rational reason for what I'm doing. Paul wrote about this. Would you take your Bible and turn, your, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll begin reading with verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Are you thankful today? that you don't have to write or speak what we have just read? Are you thankful that we have a reasonable and logical solution to the horrible thought that life is meaningless? There's something better? Turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I am covered by the righteousness of Jesus, the only righteousness sufficient to take away my guilt. We know a guilty conscience when it simmers inside us. We know that feeling. And that guilt should drive us to him, to the foot of the cross, to fall before our crucified God and claim his grace as our only hope. And today I want to spend a little time reflecting on the one who gives us hope when things seem hopeless in this world, who provides a way out from meaninglessness. We can only marvel at what we know about our faith. Our Creator, the most exalted being in this universe, 
the one greater than the universe, became the lowest of the low and died the sinner's death in that, so that no sinners need to die that death. The one who is equal with God, the one who is God, the one who is the highest and most exalted in all creation became a curse for us in order that we would not have to experience that curse. Turn with me to a profound passage, Philippians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages, page 25, in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Through the eternal ages, he is linked with us. God has adopted human nature in the person of his Son and has carried the same into the highest heaven. It is the Son of Man who shares the throne of the universe. Not only did the Lord take upon him our humanity, but he will retain that humanity forever. Humanity in the person of Christ will share the throne of the universe. That's the amazing thing. Numerous times while he was here in the flesh, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, a reference to the humanity that he had adopted for the rest of eternity. He had to become human. He had to take upon himself our humanity if he was going to be our substitute and our example. Turn with me to another passage expressing this very well, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll begin reading with verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Not only did Jesus take upon himself human nature, he needs that nature to be our merciful and faithful high priest, to understand what we're going through. The humanity of Christ is the bond through which he has linked himself with us, a link that he kept long after his work on earth was ended, for the work he's doing right now as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Turn with me to another text, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus, although still divine, retains that humanity that he first took upon himself when he was born into this world. This humanity will never leave him. The, power, the Bible gives us some powerful reasons to believe that Christ is forever to retain his human nature, the nature that he took with him to heaven after his work was done. And these words of Ellen White then become even more powerful Writing in Great Controversy, page 674, about the end of sin. One reminder alone remains. Our Redeemer will ever bear the marks of His crucifixion. Upon His wounded head, upon His side, His hands and feet, are the only traces of the cruel work that sin has wrought. And the tokens of His humiliation are His highest honor. Through the eternal ages, the wounds of Calvary will show forth His praise and declare his power. Now, let us look back just a little bit to the time of his incarnation. What does his humanity really mean for us today? We struggle with our emotions. We struggle with failure, with discouragement. We struggle with strong pulls to our lower nature. But Jesus, does he really understand? How much like me was he? Let's take a quick trip through some Bible text now. Matthew chapter 3. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Beginning with verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto him, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved, for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Did you see Jesus' emotions right there? Now this is not temper. Let's not mistake that. This is legitimate anger that he has for their blindness. This is grief. Did you notice? Grief for their willful blindness and their murderous hatred. Here was a man who was suffering, and all they had in mind was to kill the one who could heal him. Turn to another text. This one is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 37. In Gethsemane, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here 
and watch with me. Again, do you see the emotions of Jesus? Ellen White says in the old volumes of Spirit of a Prophecy, volume 3, page 94, the disciples had frequently seen him depressed. Frequently seen him depressed. Turn to John 13. John 13. Verse 21, in that Last Supper experience, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Troubled in spirit. This emotion was exactly the same as the disciples, remember when they saw Jesus walking on the water? They were troubled in spirit. This is what Herod felt when the wise men brought him news of a newborn king. He was troubled in spirit. The word means anxiety or uncertainty or fear. So what did we just read right here? Jesus had that emotion, that fear. Remember that Jesus did not know the future except what the Father had chosen to reveal to him. He feared the future as well. Now I'm going to share with you some one-sentence statements from God's modern inspired window into the truths of his word. And I'll give you the references first and then the statement. In Heavenly Places, page 155, he had all the strength of passion of humanity. That's a remarkable statement. All the strength of passion of humanity. Signs of the Times, April 9, 1896. He blessed children that were possessed of passions like his own. Have you watched your children, other children, and the passions that were born into them? Passions like his own? Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 95. The Son of God wrestled with the very same fierce, apparently overwhelming temptations that assail men. Your temptations seem fierce and overwhelming at times. Ministry of Healing, page 71. He knows by experience what are the weaknesses of humanity and where lies the strength of our temptations. Are those temptations strong in your heart and mind today? He knows by experience what you are going through and feeling. In Our High Calling, 57 to 59, Ellen White was writing a letter to her 18-year-old nephew. She said, Jesus once stood in age just where you now stand. He is acquainted with your temptations. His mind, like yours, could be harassed and perplexed. You have not a difficulty that did not press with equal weight upon him. His feelings could be hurt with neglect, with indifference of professed friends as easily as yours. I think those are some remarkable statements. Jesus knows our situation. He has been there. And I'm going to ask you to turn back to the text we read earlier, Hebrews chapter 4, one more time.
Hebrews 4, verse 15. Actually, this is another text. We were in Hebrews 2. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we realize how fully Jesus was like us, how well he knows our struggles, therefore we can come boldly to his throne, knowing that he understands. We don't have to fear or even have someone else precede us. He's there. He really understands our struggles. Well, after 33 years of this experience that I've just been describing, Christ comes to the most difficult moment of his entire eternal existence. We'll read about it in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And we'll read verse 46. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Go back now, because of this is the, this is the, the, the experience in which he is just going into the unknown future. Look at verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. What is he talking about? What is the cup that he is fearful? Go back to verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. What is happening here? Ellen White says in Signs of the Times, August 14, 1879, Doubts rent his soul in regard to his oneness with his Father. Doubts. Am I really one with my Father? Am I really under his direction? This is the Son of God, Son of Man, questioning if he will ever see his Father's face again. His anxiety, his uncertainty is real because he is going through the experience of the second death. He is dying the quality of the second death in which all hope is gone. Our Savior chose death, even eternal death, over life without us. Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 2, page 214, some have limited views of the atonement. They think that Christ suffered only a small portion of the penalty of the law of God. They suppose that while the wrath of God was felt by his dear son, he had through all his painful sufferings the evidence of his father's love and acceptance that the portals of the tomb before him were illuminated with bright hope and that he had the abiding evidence of his future glory. Here is a great mistake. The ultimate fate of the lost is the second death. And the horror arises from the all-consuming realization that they are about to cease to exist forever. Their suffering includes agonizing, unrelenting thoughts of how their sins have brought them to this place. 
They are consumed with intolerable feelings of unrelenting desolation, knowing that they are lost forever and can do nothing to stop their destruction. There is no one who can come to their aid or stop the carrying out of the sentence. They know they are going to die forever and cease to exist alone forever. This unimaginable experience that's going to happen is the price paid for our salvation. Desire of Ages 753. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish that the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. The Father's wrath upon him as the sinner's substitute that made, was, that made the cups he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Our Savior was choosing this death, even eternal death, over life without us. Christ loved us enough to die forever if that's what it would take to save the human race. This is the cup he was afraid to drink. And he asked his father to take away from him. Would he be able to endure it? There's another aspect that is not really fully appreciated. Where was the father during this experience? Where was the father? In Manuscript Releases, volume 12, page 407. In the darkest hour, when Christ was enduring the greatest suffering that Satan could bring to torture his humanity, his Father hid from him his face of love, comfort, and pity. In this trial, his heart broke. During those dark afternoon hours, the Father was there. But because of the covenant they had made in eternity past, the Father must hide his presence during Jesus' suffering. He must not reach out to Jesus, for the salvation of the human race is dependent on his control, the Father's control at that moment. He must exert infinite godly restraint to control his infinite godly desire to help his frightened, suffering, and dying son. He must have, Jesus must have no awareness of his Father's presence, nor the eternal bond of love that had always been between them, because Jesus was dying the death of the sinner with no hope and no help. The divine love of the Father for you and me restrained his overwhelming impulse to reach out and hold Jesus in his arms and assure him that he was with Jesus at that time, his greatest hour of need. But God couldn't. He wouldn't. For if he did, we would have all been lost. What pain the infinite heart of the Father must have endured watching his beloved innocent son fear that he had been abandoned and left alone for all eternity. How the Father withheld his divine embrace, I think, will be the study of the redeemed for all eternity. How he held back. We sometimes forget 
that the atonement is the suffering of the Godhead. All three, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, were purchasing our redemption. There was only one time in all eternity when there was a sundering of the Godhead. Only once was the everlasting bond between them broken. Only once was the eternal trio forced to experience the total one was one of the trio forced to experience the total abandonment and separation from the others. A separation that literally broke the heart of the Son of God. Crucifixion didn't kill him. The Romans didn't kill him. That is what killed him. Manuscript 93, 1899, it was necessary for the awful darkness to gather about his soul because of the withdrawal of the Father's love and favor, for he was standing in the sinner's place, and this darkness every sinner must experience. The heart of God yearned with greatest sorrow when his son, the guiltless, was suffering the penalty of sin. This sundering of the divine powers will never again occur throughout the eternal ages. And remember, throughout all this experience, Jesus had choices to make. He did not save himself when, even when he feared that he would never see his father's face again. He knew he could call out, enough! Let the sinful race perish and every angel in heaven would come to his rescue. He knew that. Remember, this is God, our creator. There was never a time when he didn't exist. If Jesus came down from the cross and saved himself, the human race would be lost. And of course, as he hung on the cross, there was Satan hurling at him all these discouraging thoughts, such as, there are so few who will take advantage of your sacrifice. It's not worth all the suffering. They don't care. You're wasting away your life for people who don't love you. They are an unthankful race of evil people. Let them perish, give up, come down from the cross and save yourself. The emotional pain the Son of God endured from the sense of his Father's frown, from the filthiness and shame of the sins of the world having been laid on his shoulders, from the anguish of a soul in the absence of mercy, and being unable to sense his Father's presence, all these broke the heart of the Son of God. Very simply, he chose death over life without us. He didn't want to be God if we couldn't be with him. God chose not to exist forever if that's what it would take so we could live forever. Do you see why the trial of the cross was the greatest victory this earth, the universe has ever seen or ever will see? Jesus' death was the victory of faith. Through the darkest hours of the cross, Jesus had to rely on his previous knowledge of his heavenly Father's mercy because he didn't feel it then. It is this that sustained him during those dark hours of God's disapproval and separation. Desire of Ages 756. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his Father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. By faith, Christ was victor.
One last aspect needs to be considered. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Chapter 15. Verse 2. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, what's that? The song of Moses and the Lamb. Turn back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 and verse 10. God speaking to Moses. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. God is threatening to destroy Israel and start over with Moses in his own words. And Moses pleads with God not to give the heathen nations an excanced uh, chance to misrepresent God's character of love and mercy. Turn to verse 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses is asking for eternal death if God's character is discredited and his plan is ruined. Moses and Christ share one thing in common. Eternal death for both of them was preferable to the failure of God's plan of redemption. Eternal death. The song of Moses and the Lamb means that for the last generation, the remnant, what is important is not their eternal life, not their hope of heaven, but the vindication of God's name and the success of the plan of redemption. Do you see how this changes everything in our religious experience? No longer is our focus on being forgiven so we can have the assurance of personal salvation. Our reason for existence, for being Seventh-day Adventists, is to complete God's plan of redemption. To vindicate His name and character by disproving Satan's last accusation against God's plan that sinners with fallen natures cannot obey God 100% of the time. The gospel doesn't have that kind of power, he says. And our motivation for resisting temptation and overcoming sin is not our hope for heaven or our fear of hell. We are not making daily decisions and asking questions about what is right or wrong because of our desire to be saved. Our motivation for being God's remnant and keeping God's commandments is to be the last piece in the great picture puzzle of God's plan of redemption to be the final argument in the courtroom drama that has been going on for 6,000 years, proving that Satan is lying and his way doesn't work. Our decisions about what is right and wrong, both individually and corporately as a church, are not based on what is allowable because of God's mercy and the hardness of our hearts. 
but what will prove God right and Satan wrong. No longer will we ask what we can do and still be saved. Our only desire will be to vindicate God's name. We will abandon forever looking for the minimum necessary to be saved. We now want to know and do whatever will honor God. You know, after the close of probation, we're going to have some of the same fear and anxiety that Jesus had during those dark hours. But it is not about our own salvation. We will fear that we are misrepresenting God in some way. When we come to the point when we would rather be blotted out of God's book of life and go into eternal non-existence than to tarnish the name of God in any way, then we will be learning the song of Moses and the Lamb. A song which no other generation that has ever lived on planet earth have ever or will ever learn. The song of the 144,000 who follow the Lamb exclusively with no more forays into Satan's land, either knowingly or unknowingly. And so my only fervent hope and wish today is that this generation, here and now, will learn that song and complete God's salvation puzzle the last piece in the puzzle with no more loose ends or pieces that don't fit. Everything will fit perfectly and Jesus can come and end Satan's rule on planet earth. May this time be now. Our closing hymn is one of the great hymns of the early Advent Church. It was written by Uriah Smith. Oh brother be faithful. Let's sing this one from the depths of our hearts. Number 602. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for the promises we have read. That Jesus came to our level to understand us in our weakness and our fears and our trials. That he is our faithful high priest understanding what we're going through, that he was actually willing to go into nothingness for all eternity for our salvation. And so we, I pray that we will return that heartfelt love in which nothing matters but to tell the truth about your name, Father, and to vindicate your cause, and to prove that Satan is lying in our lives, by our words, and in our commitment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.